Welcome to What The If. Philip Shane, documentary filmmaker here, along with the great historian of science, Professor Matthew Stanley of New York University. Yeah, maybe mediocre historian of science. <laughs> Clearly not a pitch man. <laughs> that is right. I'm not a pitch man or hype man. <laughs> but that's good, you know, for a scholar. You want to be you want to be accurate. You don't want to exaggerate. One hopes, yeah. I would beg to differ though. I would say you're clearly above mediocre. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> we are continuing an incredible adventure. You don't need to have heard the prior episode to to dive in with us today. This is true. But if you're interested, you can go back and check it out. What we're doing is, in the news, there was a very, very important story, potentially epic in the history of humanity, that uh, that came from Google, of course. You don't, you, you, you could Google it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that becomes kind of meta-Googling then, right? But uh, the, the researchers at Google, one of their many research-based projects is to develop a quantum computer. And they announced uh, a week or two ago that they had achieved quantum supremacy. Supremacy. As if Google itself wasn't a big enough number. If you, <laughs> if you don't know what I mean, you can Google it. Google's a number. They question, and and so the question was, what what the what? I don't even know. I realize that I don't know. I certainly don't know what a quantum computer. Well, I don't know how it works, and I'm very curious. But I didn't even. I, I realize I don't even understand quote, classical computers, regular computers, like the one that is sitting perhaps on your desk, perhaps in your hand, or uh, perhaps warming your lap to a nice toasty mm. uh, temperature. W would you agree that it's important for people to understand what this quantum computing is? Uh, yes, if for no other reason than whether or not they should get excited about it. Should you believe the hype? Mm -hmm. It's one of these things I think is one of my favorite things to do on this podcast, which is to recognize things in a way, mysteries that are hiding in plain sight. So I'm sure there's people in our audience, we have a very brilliant audience, a very knowledgeable audience who fully understand the inner workings of a computer, mm -hmm. whether classical or, or uh, quantum. But I know a lot of people don't, and I don't. And so, this is my selfish journey. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Matt has taken us inside. What we, we said was, could we, what, what would it be like if we could go inside a computer? Mm -hmm. That is an excellent way and a very fun way of figuring, uh, getting to understand what, what the hell is going on inside there. Yeah, and we decided to, a, a good way to start with this was it actually to go back in time to an era when you did walk inside computers, right? So we're talking 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, when computers were building size devices, 
and you had to go inside. So the the advantage for for us is that people actually did this, right? <laughs> we don't have to we don't have to make up this part. So welcome to part two of our what the if. You could go inside a computer. No matter how big or how small you or the computer are. When we last left off, we were wearing white coats. We were women. That's right. Uh, which is a whole nother what the if. But we were women inside a, a city block sized computer. I think you said, and women, because at that time, the women, women were predominantly the workers inside the computer managing all the patch cables. Yeah, that's right. The actual physical switching of cables from place to place. And the, uh, the, the, the core element of these giant computers um, is what used to be called a vacuum tube. Right. And a very, and a sort of short one sentence summary being that John von Neumann. Was it John or Jan? Uh, probably Johann, actually. Johann. Uh, yeah, everybody Johan. called him John. Ah, John von Neumann, inventor of this uh, early, early computer. Basically, what, what, what he realized he could do is he said, if I could have a machine that could take, a, that you could take any question you might ask as a person and mm -hmm. you want to know the answer to, far beyond just a calculation question like what's two plus two, how do I, um, we got all these submarines shooting down, uh, submarines, Nazi submarine, well, not, yeah, yeah Nazi, Nazi submarines, submarines yeah. mm -hmm. uh, U-boats, uh, torpedoing our allied ships in the Atlantic. How do we figure out where they are? We can't see them. We can't, it's a very complicated problem. He said, well, actually, if we could convert this question into a sentence that is a lot that that is simply steps of logic well there's a mm -hmm. bunch of conditions right well, yeah if, a mathematical sentence right and if i could convert that into a mechanical form or electro electronic form in a machine the machine could give us an answer the machine could sort through all the possible bits of data perhaps and yep. uh, tell us what to do and he called it a universal computer and so is is any you said city city block-sized computer. And mm -hmm. you mentioned ENIAC. Yep. Is the ENIAC computer a city block-sized machine? No, it's a building-sized one, so you can still crawl inside it. If you find yourself in Cambridge, Massachusetts, you can poke your head into the Harvard Science Center, and they have the front end of uh, ENIAC sitting in the lobby there, you can look at. And I should say, it's enormous on its own, like it's the size of you know a truck. Uh, so people say, oh, wow, that's a really big computer. I'm like, no, that's the front part, right? That's the, <laughs> that's like the grill. Um, the actual computer itself was gigantic, right? This is just the, the, the cosmetic part. So building size in terms of one floor, but is it also building size in terms of, of height? I would need to check on that, actually. I don't yeah. know how, how high it was. Yeah. Yeah. So Von Moen has this idea that if you're clever enough, you can reduce any kind of question or conceptual problem to the, one of these logical mathematical sentences that could then be processed by an electronic computer and therefore hopefully done quickly. 
right? They're a problem that maybe humans couldn't do at all. And it's really what I wanted to, to stress, and I think what we get from walking inside the computer is understanding that the, the ones and zeros that we talk about with computers are physical things. So when we talk about binary math and ones and zeros, uh, the one is a vacuum tube that is giving out electrical current, and the zero is a vacuum tube that is not. And ones and zeros, because that, this is talk about hiding in plain sight, just the most, most, most basic concept here. Mm-hmm. We use ones and zeros because that is the simplest thing to imagine. Like, why? Well, actually, it's kind of the other way around that because vacuum tubes are either on or off, that gives us the, that, that makes the binary mathematical structure the natural one to use. So, if somebody had invented a vacuum tube that had three possible states instead of two, then we would use trinary mathematics. That is amazing. Yeah. I did not realize that. Wow. And this is something, actually, this is something that happens a lot with fields like computing and mathematics, where we, we think about it on an abstract level, concepts like ones and zero and binary mathematics. But when you drill down, it turns out there's a, there's a physical thing, right? There's this glass tube that you can hold in your hand so the one or the zero is not an abstract concept. It's an actual physical state of this object you're holding in your hand. Somehow it occurred to him that I could do this with vacuum tubes. Yeah, I should say von Neumann doesn't uh, invent the tube or even the physical computer itself. He's a theorist that tries to figure out better ways to, to do that. So yeah, so he's the one who comes up with the idea of the universal computer. Maybe we can use this to solve any kind of problem you want. Uh, and like, like we, we said, there are some problems that are not obviously solvable by computation that he is able to do so. So that's pretty cool, right? That's, that's, a, that's a useful thing. But computers are still big and expensive. Uh, we're talking here like mid-20th century. So, you know, the chairman of IBM famously says, I think there's a world market for maybe five computers. Wow. That's what he said. Yeah. Because what he means is these building size monstrosities that take weeks to program um, and then maybe weeks to run one of those programs. They're, um, they're so big and difficult to use that even if von Neumann was right and we can solve all these problems with them, uh, it's not worth, not, not many people are actually going to be interested in it. The big change comes in the late 50s, early 60s with the invention of the transistor, which is uh, a word you may hear bandied about occasionally. And basically a transistor is a microscopic version of a vacuum tube. Right, and invented by... At, uh... Bell. Uh, Bell Labs yep. in, in lovely New Jersey. Yeah. Oh, in New Jersey. Bell Labs is, um, was a pure science laboratory set up by a telecommunications company. And in the old days, that used to be a fairly common thing. You'd get some profit-driven corporation that would just have a pure science lab where people did weird stuff. Um, and then sometimes that would be useful and sometimes it was not. And nowadays, this is not really the case. Nowadays, if you're doing research for a corporation, it's with a very specific goal in mind. Oh. So this was a different era when you could just be a weirdo trying weird stuff. Although maybe maybe this 
department of Google is like that? I mean, they know they can well, profit uh, off that's, it. Well, that's true, actually. Google, in a sense, is a throwback to those um, those older days. So the, the transistor conceptually works the same way as the vacuum tube. So it's got two wires coming in and then one wire coming out. And uh, it'll if there's electricity coming in on both of the incoming wires, then you'll get electricity on the outcoming wire. So now the transistor can be on or off one or zero the way the vacuum tube is. Stepping back to the vacuum tube just before we leave them behind, sure. these... Mm-hmm. Beautiful glass items, warm, warm to the touch. Yeah, too warm. Yeah. Too warm. And then maybe they buzz a little bit, too. Like, I'm thinking, if you're inside one of those computers, I bet it... Uh, it would be quite noisy, yeah. Noisy, buzzy, kind of a cool electrical smell, probably. Well, probably burning smells, actually, because vacuum tubes work. Uh, vacuum tubes have to get hot to work. Those of us who are of a certain age will remember old radios and televisions that had vacuum tubes. And, you know, it's uh, you'd flip it on and then it would take a minute, five minutes to warm up. That's right. And that was literally warming up. That is, the tubes did not work until they got hot. And with some of the old cases, I remember the the case on the TV I had when I was growing up. You, if you looked kind of through the side, yeah. you could see the tube starting to glow yes. as you could see it warming up like that. Yeah. Yeah. So vacuum, and so in that case, in that sense, they're like old style um, light bulbs, incandescent light bulbs, and of course those burn out. I didn't realize the vacuum tube has to be hot, has to be warm to work. Uh, it does. Yeah. That is not a byproduct of working. It's no, just, it's not just a crappy one. It's not just a, a, a bad side effect. But yeah, it actually has to be hot. Um, and this is one of the one of the major downsides of it. So these old computers would be hot and energy intensive and the vacuum tubes would burn out regularly. So you would have to go back inside it and find the one tube that burned out and screw it back in. So like it's, you know, if you have Christmas trees with lights on it and one of the lights burns out and you have to figure out which one burned out. That's the kind of thing that slowed down their calculations for the hydrogen bomb. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Is it a simple explanation as to why it has to be warmer? Or is that? It is essentially what, what makes those primitive electronics work is getting electrons moving. So electrons usually kind of like to hang out where they are. Uh, it takes some some work. And one of the ways to get electrons moving is to heat up a piece of metal and then um, apply some voltage to it. And then the electrons kind of get excited by the heat and then scoot it off by the voltage. So vacuum tubes... Uh, cathode ray tubes, early X-ray tubes, all of these work on this same principle, that you need enough heat to get the electrons moving in the first place. And I guess that whatever's sensing the output of it it is not very sensitive in those days. So maybe it needs those electrons to be moving a lot. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So you need a lot of electrons to make anything happen. right. So the big shift with transistors is now these are what are called solid state electrical devices. So instead of needing to kind of crudely rip electrons off with lots of heat and lots of power, we're dealing with very small numbers of electrons, like tens, okay? Which is great, 
because that means because so your transistor doesn't have to get hot. It, it may get hot if it's not a very good transistor, but it doesn't have to get hot. It's much faster because you've got fewer electrons to move around. Right? It takes, it takes less power. But it performs, at the end of the day, it performs that same logical operation. It's using the physical motion of electrons to represent some kind of mathematical or logical operation. Wow. So, yeah. Okay. So, this is very simple. Wow. Again, another revelatory thought or a, a bit of information. A bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, perhaps a bite. A bite of information. That the huge uh, leap forward comes from the fact that the early computers needed to work, needed a lot of energy to move a lot of electrons mm -hmm. so that the pieces of the, of the machine could basically be triggered. Um, the switches could switch. And uh, then somebody says, well, what if we didn't need to move nearly as many electrons? And the difference in scale is unbelievable, right? Between a vacuum yes, tube. That's right. It's staggering. Yeah. So like I said, a vacuum tube is a thing you hold in your hand. Right? So if you want, so when we talk about like computer memory and we say something like this computer has eight gigabytes of memory, right. a bit is one object that can be in an on or off state. So one vacuum tube for John Neumann. So a gigabyte, byte, and then a byte is uh, eight bits, okay? So one gigabyte is eight billion things that can be in an on or off one or zero state. Wow. Okay. So like, so early computers like ENIAC would have uh, a, for instance, a kilobyte of memory, but that represents a thousand separate vacuum tubes. <laughs> All right. So again, imagine you're the person who has to, to fix the single burned out tube in a thousand tubes. That's a lot, right? And so this, so, this giant building size computer has 1,000 bytes, 1,000 bits. Bytes. One th right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like a kilobyte we right. think about today. Right. So your, if your phone has gigabytes of memory, which it probably does, yeah. that is a million times as much as ENIAC. <laughs> so a million ENIACs, I wonder how big that would be. Well, that's an interesting question, right? So if it's the size of a building, a million buildings, how many buildings are there in New York City? Um, let me do a quick Google here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how many Ask buildings? Ask the quantum computer. In New York, all right, that was the first suggestion, oh, first uh, suggestion of Google here. Oh, actually, it says one million buildings. Actually, that's convenient. Wow. Um, so assuming you believe this first hit on Google, um, if you want an ENIAC, a vacuum tube-based computer that is that has as much memory as your phone in your pocket, you need to convert all of New York City, all five boroughs, <laughs> into one big computer. And... and I hate to say it, but Staten Island would be the trash can. <laughs> part of, That's the, the part of your desktop. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and 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 that isn't so. Your phone has as much, uh, mem yeah. Anyway, your phone is as powerful as a computer the size of New York City would have been back in the fifties. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. amazing. 
And so, and 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 just getting down to more simple uh, comparisons, I have seen vacuum tubes that were like gigantic, not as common as the ones you hold oh, sure. in your hand. Yeah. But what would what mm-hmm. would those have been? Well, those those were probably cathode ray tubes specifically, ah. um, which were used for things like um, X-ray machines. I see. I see. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So you'll you'll see those that are like head sized. Um, or like badger-sized ones too, um, but each even a big one of those is still just one bit. <laughs> so you actually don't want a big vacuum tube; you want a small one generally. The new ENIAC 3.0 with only badger-sized <laughs> vacuum tubes. It's the thinnest ENIAC we've ever made. <laughs> so then, transit. So the reason transistors are cool then is not only are they faster and take less power and easier to replace but they're microscopically small so like the original transistor it would be the size of like the head of a pin wow the head of a pin so compared to and i should say that's like the original transistor and then transistors get much smaller much more quickly um so pretty soon they get like by the mid 60s a transistor is the width of is the size of the width of one of your hairs wow compared to and 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 that is but that is one that is still one bit yep so that is replacing one vacuum tube but imagine if you could hold in your hand a vacuum tube which Mm -hmm. is say let's say um the size of your cell phone but imagine your cell phone being a full cylinder around Oh, yep. instead of a flat thing. Uh, so you get this big round thing in your hand, big, almost like also you could think of like a giant, like a test tube that's the size of your hand. Mm-hmm. You can hold. Yeah, kind of a fat test tube. Yeah. yeah. And uh, then the question is, how many hairs <laughs> could you put in that? I don't know. It's a lot. Well, I mean, the answer is is thousands at even immediately, even with primitive transistors. Right. um, You can do thousands uh, of these sorts of things. So suddenly it becomes possible to have things like if, again, people of a certain age will remember the magic of transistor radios. Yeah. Right. So a radio used to be a cabinet sized thing. It was a piece of furniture. Yeah. And that's because the vacuum tubes were so big. And now uh, you could carry a radio in your hand, in your hand. Can you conceive of such a thing? Right. It's extraordinary. Uh, So computing suddenly becomes possible um, on a, on a totally different scale. Right. Right. Now, and, and so a, ra- a radio is not a computer or is it would in, in some sense? Well, is it- this is see, this is an interesting, um, interesting side effect of the of von Neumann's idea of a universal computer uh-huh. is essentially anything that involves processing information is in is potentially a computer in the von Neumann universal sense. So since sound is a kind of information a radio is just a very specific kind of computer. Right? All it can uh-huh. do is process sound. Um, but that just makes it a bad universal computer. Uh, and then the <laughs> reasoning can go the other way. They say, well, if a radio is just a bad computer, maybe I can build a good computer that could process radio as well, as well as doing mathematics. Ah, yeah. Interesting. It's just a question of how do I translate sound into a mathematical sentence that can be processed by a computer. Right. Now, another I- important concept here, before we dive, we're, we're going to shrink ourselves down and to go mm-hmm. into a transistor, 
which I'm very much looking forward to. Um, I might need to go on a diet uh, to shrink down that. Uh, yeah, we may have to cut off all of your limbs. Yeah, I hope you're not <laughs> we may to just have to take a neuron out of your brain. But uh, um, important thing to note here also is that a, a lot of, let's say, at least the younger people listening or um, might be making a lot of comparisons between their phone or their computer and these early transistors. But are, are it sounds like we are not yet talking about digital uh computing is that right like you were talking so about radio these are digital computers um ah. so digital uh refers to any computer that uses ones and zeros right that's what we mean by digits right. in this context uh so eniac was a digital computer ah. too um but they would have been the, the people at the time would have been more interested in the fa fact that it was an electronic computer ah, uh -huh, okay uh -huh. um so the i should say the opposite of a digital computer is an analog computer right so like charles babbage's 1830s attempt at a uh, a computing machine was analog uh, because it relied on gears and levers and things like that ah, ah. but the radio i guess the reason i was thinking about that was that the radio is an analog is an analog device yeah that's right device. so um if you want to turn it into a universal computer then you need to make it a digital one right Hence the bad, bad. Com <laughs> Next time you see a radio, point your finger at it and say, "Bad computer." <laughs> <laughs> bad computer. I, uh, I suspect a lot of us spend a lot of time telling our computers they're bad. That's true. They're digital. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the latest one. Um, okay, so now we shrink down. Um, now, interestingly, we began. We were not. We had not shrunk ourselves down to the size of a. Um, vacuum tube we were simply surrounded by vacuum tubes uh yes that's right however if we let's but for the sake of understanding because these things are so tiny we're mm -hmm. now going to shrink ourselves down to the size uh, where we can go we can walk inside the transistor yep that's going to be tricky right yeah so what the if? <laughs> <laughs> you could shrink yourself down so tiny that you could walk inside a transistor. What does a transistor look like if we are, if it's bigger than us? Unfortunately, quite uninteresting. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, All that work. A, I, mean. I know. A transistor is essentially a... Um, a sandwich. Ah, well, that's very interesting. Yeah. Of different kinds of metal. Mm. So no mayonnaise, mm. no mustard, no bacon. Mm. Um, is you layer together uh, different kinds of metal that have different um, affinities for electrons, right? Different different metals like to hang on to their electrons in different ways. So am I looking at um, uh, a stack? Like a, a a rectangular stack yeah, of like three. Yeah, like a rectangular a rectangular sandwich. I think is about right. Okay. Um, and sort of the the most basic version is you'd have three layers. Um, and this is where the magic of silicon comes in. Ah. Okay. Uh, so you can um, you have to choose metals that have specific affinities for electrons. 
And then what that means is the electrons like to hang out in one layer of the sandwich or another. Mm. And then by putting some voltage across your transistor, you can get the electrons to move from one place to another. So it's, why is it a sandwich and not simply two? Um, well, that's a good question because you want to be able to force the electrons to hang out in the middle ah, uh, okay. very often. That's often what you want to have happen. So either right. you force them to stay in the middle or, or leave. Right. But I should say this is the this is the the this is a very crude image, right? The actual right. transistors are a little more sophisticated than this. Um, but essentially, it's so it's still doing the same thing that the vacuum tubes did, which is regulating when electrons can move from place to place. That's all what it comes down to. But now the transistor can either be giving off electrons or not. So the bread of this metal sandwich is, <laughs> this sounds like the silicon is the meat inside? or Well, so this is where it gets a, a little tricky. Because uh, most metals just like electrons however they like them. And um, some like them a lot, some like them a little. So this is where silicon gets cool. Is you can silicon has its own affinity, but you can convince it to have a different affinity by doing what's called doping it. And this is not like <laughs> a, <laughs> this is literally the term. Right? Um, if you take a little bit of a different metal, this sandwich is it, getting better. <laughs> get a little spicy something yeah. inside the sandwich. Uh, if you dope the silicon um, with another metal, and there's lots of ones you can choose from for this, you can make it have whatever electron affinity you want. Now, I just want to be, yeah, so electron affinity I'm, uh, so means that um, a certain number of electrons will stay in this metal, whereas an another piece of, another type of metal that, a different type of metal might say, I can only hold, I can hold fewer electrons. Yeah, you can think of it as a mount. I like to think of it as kind of how strongly it pulls on the electrons. Oh, it pulls them in. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. Um, because remember, what we want is, is them moving or not moving. So right. how hard you pull. Oh, I see. So, so silicon, how strong yeah. it attracts. Right. Yeah. Okay. So silicon is cool because you can make it, by doping it, you can make it um, pull as hard or as weak as you want. Interesting. So that lets, that's what lets you build transistors of all different sorts. Ah, so you mean, and Dobie, basically you say, if you put something in it, it's now not going to pull as many electrons towards it. Yeah, or more, depending or more. on how you need it. Right. And doping it is putting in just a different type of metal? or um, Yeah, that's right. You kind of contaminate it. You put a, put a little bit in. It's like putting pepper into your uh, bologna, right? Ah. That's if we're going to go with the sandwich metaphor. Right. right? Right. Or jelly into your peanut butter. Yeah, that'd be fine, too. Yeah. Do that. Oh. yeah. yeah. Um, so we've got, so this is quite amazing, right? So once you have the, the possibility of a transistor, now you can get your ones and zeros very small. And uh, if you have, if you figure, you figured out silicon doping, then you can make transistors um, of all different kinds as well. Uh, and this is amazing. So they're small and they're powerful now. And the one, um, just, just to clarify, so the one and zero you get a one if um, just is, is it just like a vacuum tube? There's a wire. It's just like that, right? It's just two wires. It's just that the wires are now very, very small. Right. And they come in and they attach to the bread or the meat? Uh, yes, they would attach to, well, they attach to the whole, well, probably think of it as the, yeah, the two sides of the bread. Right. Um, would be fine. Yeah. And so if it's uh, one example we, we had in the last episode was um, if you want 
if the computer, in order to make a decision about whether we are recording a podcast today, or if you want to know, are we recording? Mm-hmm. Is it likely we're recording a podcast today? The computer would need to know a bunch of different things, and one of the things it would need to know is that uh, whether your computer is online today and yep. whether my computer is online today. That's one of the conditions. Uh, in other words, if that if neither of those if that is not true, if if Matt's computer and or Philip's computer, if neither one of those is online today, we are not recording a podcast. Yes. Likely. <laughs> And yeah. so, so in yeah. yeah, so for von, John von Neumann, that piece of information: Are we recording a podcast today? Right. Would require at least one vacuum tube to hold, right? And okay. it has a wire coming in from my computer and a wire coming in from your computer. Mm-hmm. And if it senses, oh, both of these wires are active, it sends out electricity along a third wire that says yes. And if no electricity is coming out of that vacuum tube then it is then not nothing. true right. Right. that's a zero right so right. it's a one or a zero exactly. okay. um, but now we can store that information on one transistor right something the size of your hair right and yet it's the same thing it's a, a, it's just a much much smaller amount of electricity coming in on much 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 smaller wires mm-hmm. and much 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 less electricity yep, going that's out. right so that's that's the that's the theory of von neumann's universal computer uh-huh. That what's important is just whether or not it can hold a one and a zero. Can it process information? It doesn't matter what the computer is actually made of. Um, the technical term for this is substrate neutral. All right. And this turns out, I should say, this is this is actually kind of an important idea because you can build a computer out of anything that you can build a, a universal computer out of anything that can hold a one and a zero. Okay. So. Uh-huh. You could make a computer, a digital computer, um, out of, uh, let's see here, a whole bunch of pennies, right? Because a penny, if it's heads up, it's a one. If it's head down, it's a zero. Right. So if I just scatter a thousand pennies on the ground, that's about a kilobyte of information. Um, and I alter those by flipping them, right? I have to do it manually, which is why it takes a long, which is why electronic computers are better. But you could make a computer, um, out of anything that can hold that information. Yeah, and actually, I realize a much simpler way, maybe another way for the layperson to think about ones and zeros is simply a yes or a no. Yep, that's a good way to think about it. Right, like a one is yes. Yes, I sense both wires. Both wires are coming in, are alive. Both computers are online. Yes, Philip and Matt are both online. If Mm -hmm. I'm not doing anything, it's like, uh, and and you know you look at that vacuum tube and nothing's coming out of it. You go, oh, it says no. Both are not. Both computers are not on. Um, a fabulous example of the kind of analog computer you're talking about is in. Is it the three body problem or one of the sequels where they, <laughs> the king, on the other planet, so whose name I'm forgetting at the moment in three body problem, but builds or it's a story about a king who builds a computer out of mounted soldiers soldiers on horses Mm -hmm. yeah and all they do to indicate each each soldier on a horse is holding a flag and if he raises his flag it means yes it's a one and if he lowers his flag it's a zero um anyone anyone who's read those book or i don't know if there's a way to (laughs) find just that little story in there it's amazing it is, and, and, and a great example um, of that. 
yeah. of, of how you can make these things work. Right. Um, yeah, so that's pretty cool, right? And I should say that another consequence of this substrate neutral idea is that uh, this is where we get the metaphor of your brain as a computer too, because the individual neurons in your brain can hold information in the same way a transistor does, um, except uh, instead of wires, it's neurotransmitters going in and out of the individual neuron. Right. And did they... Did that discovery about the brain come after we had invented computers? Well, it's it's an interesting kind of thing. It's it's kind of a, a code discovery. That is, as we learn more about the way the brain works, that changes the way people think about um, mathematics. And as people like von Neumann get ideas about mathematical theory, that changes the way we think about the brain, too. So it's, it's, it's what historians call a co-production. <laughs> cool. <laughs> That's pretty great. That is actually a technical term. Yes, yes. <laughs> In Hollywood terms, a co-production of humans and Mother Nature. Uh, I wonder which one of those gets more royalties. I'm guessing Mother Nature. Like all the great so. studios, steals all the money. <laughs> and says, oh, sorry, there was no money left. Um, so now the, another f important feature of the ENIAC that we were inside, there were all these vacuum tubes, but there were these women workers who were moving cables around to connect, to basically construct the sentence in a way. It's like, okay, well, if... Um, right. The question, if the question has many parts to it, not just are, is Philip's computer and Matt's computer on, but like, well, this thing needs to be true, and this thing needs to be true, and this thing needs to be true, and you need to have a vacuum tube giving you a yes or no about all these different questions. My guess is you connect all those tubes with these cables to something yep. else. That's right, right. Mm -hmm. And so, what what is the equivalent of the of the workers? Wearing white coats. Uh, well, that's great. So now we don't actually need those anymore. <laughs> uh, those people anymore. Sorry, ladies. <laughs> that's right. This is unemployment rears its head. Now we can build what's called an integrated circuit. Oh, which is probably which what you think when people think of computer chip. Yeah, that's an integrated circuit. So now you take your transistors of many different kinds, and you lay them down um, on a chunk of something, a piece of plastic or whatever, uh, and connect them with wires in such a way that any transistor can talk to any other transistor uh, without needing a physical rearrangement of things. That is, you can do this purely electronically just by f um, changing the way electricity flows through. You can get one transistor to talk to another. Okay, and it's but it's through gates of some kind, is that right? That's right. Yeah, these are, um, yes, a transistor acts as a gate, so an AND gate or an OR gate or something like that. But uh, the wonderful thing about solid-state electronics is that you don't have to go in and physically rearrange it every time you want something new. So what what's going on there? So if you, um, let's see here, I don't think I have one handy. Integrated circuits are so small these days that people haven't seen them anymore. But if you've ever like cracked open a piece of electronics and you see that green board with with metal on it, um, that's an integrated circuit. Okay. Uh, okay, so the chip is not the integrated circuit. It's the circuit board. 
it is well sort of oh, the whole thing yeah the whole thing. that's right got yeah. it got it um so there's these pieces of metal laid down on the circuit board that allow the transistors to talk to each other and that's what that's why you need a clever engineer is to to set this up um so it works the way you want it to okay so so the right it's as if instead of the women patching together individual things in all different ways it sounds like the the integrated circuit has all the transistors connected in all possible ways Yep, that's a fine way to think about it. That's right. And, and in practice, of course, you can't actually connect it in all possible ways. Mm. Um, and that's why in tr that's why there are no true universal computers, is you have to make some kind of decisions about how it's going to work. Ah, um, but okay. for the most part, you can do, and that's why there's different kinds of chips. Uh, it's because you have to make certain choices. But again, in principle, right, this is what they're all going for. So once you can do that, then your integrated circuits are very small, still difficult to build at this time because it's hard to make things that are small. Okay, But the 60s and the 70s see this electronics revolution in which it's suddenly possible to carry around uh, a radio in your pocket. And in terms of computing, then we get what's called a mini-computer Ah, yes. By mini computer, they mean not the size of a building. <laughs> the size of a desk? No. The size of a desk, right. A desk, yeah. okay. Um, so you could have one in a office. Right. right. Like now you would have an office computer. Okay. Um, so that's uh, an amazing thing. So we don't think of that as a mini, it's only mini relative to ENIAC. Right. Okay. But it looks like a big, like it's like a refrigerator size. Yeah, that kind of thing. Mini, yeah. yeah. And still difficult to use, um, tricky to program. Right. right. Uh, so you still need kind of specialists to run it. Your ordinary office drone is not using it. This continues for a while. Things get smaller and smaller and get cheaper and cheaper. And then we get what come to be called microcomputers, which is what you think of as a desktop computer. Okay. Oh, okay. So um, mini is just to give a, a clearer image is those uh, things that look like often a refrigerator or several refrigerators all lined up. Also, we might also call them mainframes. Uh, yeah, times. that could be right. And they mm -hmm. have lots. They are those computers that have lots of flashing lights on them. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Big banks of flashing lights and or connected to them. You might at a certain era maybe it's in later in the 60s you start to see spinning tape um yeah that's right so things like spinning tape is is um uh, another dimension of things that we haven't really talked about right. uh, which is the ability to store the information long term right so back with vacuum tubes say or even with transistors um when you have uh if you do you have this series of ones and zeros that contains the information you're interested in um, and that's all that only stays there while the vacuum tube is on and then if you turn off the power Oops. then the vacuum tube is all the ones turn into zeros and you've lost it all so that's a huge pain um, so people try to come up with ways well is there some way we can um, save the information we have and retrieve it again later and that's where things like what we think of what eventually becomes magnetic tape and floppy disk. Is the, these are attempts to kind of save that state. 
of the of the vacuum tubes. Yeah. And and still, even just a, a little note to the uh, the quality of uh, or the kind of machinery we're talking about here, the amount of effort, the amount of energy that it goes into operating these things. I was recently at the computer, uh, the, called the Living Computer Museum in Seattle, which ah, if yeah. you're ever there, I highly recommend. It's one of the most amazing places I've ever been. Um, it was founded by Paul Allen. And uh, it is a computer museum, but unlike many computer museums, every single computer is working. That's pretty amazing. And just about all of them you can sit down and play with. Uh, incredible. And uh, including there's punch card machines. You can <laughs> sit down at a keyboard and type out and make some punch cards and put it in. Uh, actually, if, if you go online, you can, if you, if you know a little bit about what you're doing, you can actually go online and remotely send programs like Unix or something to one of their mainframes. Oh, is that right? Uh, yeah, That's and cool. you can run little programs on there. Anyway, absolutely amazing place. And and one of the things we got to do was uh, uh, we went back into the kind of archival storage area into the shop where they were restoring a lot of these machines. And they had one of these very, very, very early 1960s so-called mini computers, which was the size of a giant refrigerator. And it was all sort of opened up so you could see all the wires and everything and the cool. light bulbs hanging out. And um <laughs> To program it, there was a. This is so something out of the movie Brazil. A manual typewriter, like like oh, like a Remington type thing um, that you you typed, but instead of typing on paper, it punched holes in a a long string of tape, like a telegraph tape. Oh yeah, and that mm -hmm. was on put onto a little cartridge. Anyway, the engineer says to us at one point, uh, he says, "Well, you know, we haven't really gotten this thing working yet, but uh, do you want us to turn it on?" <laughs> <laughs> it was like it had not been turned on yet. And we were like, yeah, absolutely. And so he reaches over, he says, okay, I've got my fire extinguisher here. <laughs> oh <my goodness. laughs> that was actually a genuine necessity. The thing might catch on fire. He's like, I can't say it hasn't happened before. Uh, fortunately, it did not. And he got it all fired up. And it took about five minutes of clunking, whirring, lights coming on until finally a little bell went ding, ding. <laughs> and he goes there it is it worked it ran our program you know anyway super cool so that's the that's the level of machinery we're talking yeah. about right. and uh we're going to continue again this is i love this is a deep dive a what the if what the if deep dive <laughs> dive dive <laughs> and we are going to be an electron inside one of these microcomputers like the kind that's on your desk or perhaps a much, much, much earlier version, but still we're getting to desktop size uh, computers. And um, that will be next week, and I have no idea what happens. I, I, I want to say, by the way, we are still wearing our white coats. So there's still a dress code. In fact, that's even more important now because we're doing... Uh, solid state manufacturing, which is very tricky materials wise. Right. Okay. So now, not only we were wearing white coats before because we were very professional and it was 1950s and everybody was elegant. <laughs> um, and, and of course, the black glasses. And so um, now we are wearing like a, a little hairnet and mm -hmm. like the whole yeah. thing. Hairnet, special gloves. We're probably working in a clean room. That's right. We have little booties, but we are an electron. We're, we're, um, yeah, so whether or not electrons have feet is another question. But. 
That's right. We don't know. It's a mis- one of the mysteries we're going to discover. We're going <laughs> to dive into. Do electrons... It's like... What was it? What's that? Uh, do um, robots dream of electric sheep? Do electrons dream of having feet? Yeah, this could totally be a uh, Philip K. Dick story. It actually is. It is very, very, very much. So an electron that wears glasses uh, and safety goggles over the glasses... Uh, well, I should it, hope so. Yeah, we're very careful. <laughs> the yeah. funny thing is about an electron being wrapped in anti-static. It's a very lonely. <laughs> that would be awkward. <laughs> very yeah. lonely electron. That'll be next week. Uh, if you've been enjoying this, uh, absolutely, I, I would really love to know. We're going off in a little. We're experimenting here. A new, different, uh, little, little trying out a different kind, little style of what the if that we may do occasionally. The deep dive. Email us at feedback at whattheif.com. And just tell, I want to know. I'm curious. What do you think? Yeah, let us know what you think. Yeah. Uh, also, you can contact us. Uh, you can just go to our website, which I encourage you to do anyway, whattheif.com. Yeah, there's cool stuff there. Very cool. You can learn about who we are. You can listen to all our previous episodes. And most importantly, you can subscribe there uh, to whatever your favorite podcatcher is your app whether it's apple Podcasts or google play stitcher spotify um castro mm. tune in we're on all these different things and uh, by the way if we happen if you discover that we are not on the thing you prefer listening to let me know follow us on twitter at what the if show where you can uh, post a lot of news stories there and we have fun discussions and uh, beautiful images um space news science news, all that kind of stuff. And if you can do it, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a review. Please do. On that podcatcher. So next week, as we uh, shrink down to the size of an electron, we put on a little anti-static smock and booties. We really don't know what's going to happen. I think the electron itself is going to be a little freaked out by this. I would imagine so. Yeah. And so in imagining all the possibilities, I mean, we're an electron now inside an integrated circuit. The number of things that could happen to us, good or bad. (laughs) It's quite extraordinary. And so as electrons, we scream as loud as we can. I don't know if anyone will hear us because we're so tiny. What the... the...